الجزيرة بودكاست Russia has assumed the presidency of the United Nations Security Council. He's taking on the position while waging war in Ukraine. So what does this mean for the United Nations? And can it still play the role its founders hoped for in seeking world peace? I'm Nick Clark, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. So let's uh, bring in our guest now. In Moscow, we have uh, Stanislav Mitrikovich, uh, international relations researcher at the Financial University under the government of the Russian Federation. In Helsinki, Rasmus Hindren, head of international relations at the European Center of Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats. And over in Brussels is Stephen Erlanger, uh, chief diplomatic correspondent in Europe for the New York Times. Welcome to all of you. Uh, Stanislav, if I could start with you in Moscow. So let's just get this straight. A country in the act of fighting a war that's killed tens of thousands of people is now head of an organization that was set up to promote peace and security. It's absurd, isn't it? Well, UN was organized to prevent a third world war, a super big war. Everything else is just a question of interpretation. So I think UN played its role in preventing the third world war. Everything else will You know, America waged war, Russia waged wars, many other countries waged wars, including countries that are considered to be permanent members of the Security Council and countries that are just part of Security Council not being permanent members. So I wouldn't say it's absurd. It will be absurd to get Russia out of United Nations because this new United Nations will not be recognized by China, possibly by India. So still it is expensive. It is a space for a discussion. It is a still a square we can, where we can meet. Um, it was possible to use UN even in the period of Cold War. Why not use it now? Uh, Rasmus, what do you think? Uh, is it right that Russia should head the Security Council while it's prosecuting this war in Ukraine? Well, I think uh, absurd is, is one a good way to, to describe it because, I mean, we have a country that has been... Um, designated an aggressor state by the UN and, and we have a country whose leader is uh, uh, an accused war criminal. So in, in, in those terms, it's, it's uh, fair to, to call the situation absurd. So in practical terms, what will uh, Russia bring to the table uh, in its role as presiding of the UN Security Council for this time? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, of course, it's mostly a, a symbolic uh, position. But uh, it's of course it has um, the presidency has agenda setting power, uh, it has uh, a narrative power, and I think that's where uh, Russia will try to to be most active to to bring their version uh, of the narrative to the to the forefront to to spread uh, disinformation as as they did in February 2022 when they last held the presidency. Okay, we'll explore that line in, in a little bit. But Stephen, first of all. Uh, Of course, there is precedent, as I mentioned in the introduction. The United States had chair at the time of uh, its invasion of Iraq. So really, nobody can complain about who takes the chair now. Well, I agree with that. I mean, these are just the rules. This is life. This is the way the UN works. The UN was set up basically to give special privileges to the big powers that, served, that won the Second World War. 
one can ask quite rightly, are those still the right powers to sit on the Security Council? Should the Security Council still have a veto? Should Germany be part of the Security Council, India, et cetera, et cetera? But those are reforms. Um, I just think, you know, this is the UN. We've had very odd cases in the past. For instance, we've had the Syrian regime sitting on the UN Human Rights Council, um, which I find as offensive as, as, um, as almost anything else. So, you know, I'm not terribly upset by it. I know why the Ukrainians are upset by it, and I know why people are making, you know, kind of rhetorical hay out of it. But um, I do believe the UN exists to have conversations. It does have its rules, and um, I think it's just the way it is. We can not like it, we can like it, it really doesn't matter. It's gonna take a lot to change it and it won't be changed by tomorrow. Uh, Stephen, can Russia use its uh, chairmanship to its advantage as Rasmus was just alluding to? Well, I'm sure it can, it, it can certainly try. I know it, it, it wants to uh, set a debate on arms control, for instance, which um, it has its own point of view, it has its own narrative, um, but it may have other debates that it wants. But um, the fact is, I think it won't change the world's understanding of what's happening inside Ukraine. I mean, there are already some countries in the world, like China, who are embarrassed by it, or also permanent members um, who keep saying they believe in territorial integrity and yet do not condemn Russia's invasion of sovereign Ukraine. So there's lots of contradictions to go around, it seems to me. And Stanislav, it certainly enables Russia to present itself as a, a, a legitimate world player to its people back at home, Russians back at home. Well, of course, if Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council of the United Nations, it is much more important than International Criminal Court that, let's say, is not recognized by many other countries, including U.S. and China. The uh, Security Council is much more important than, let's say, General Assembly uh, that mostly make just rhetorical uh, declarations and nothing more. So, definitely, it is important for internal legitimacy of Russian power inside Russia. It is important for external legitimacy. Russia is recognized by China, by India, by many Arabic countries, by global south, I would say, as a legitimate power of the world. And the war in Ukraine doesn't change it. It's necessary to understand and to, and to admit that it will be necessary to have a deal with Russia anyway, even after uh, this military conflict is somehow resolved. Uh, Stanislav, I just wanted to ask you as well uh, what you made of what Dmitry Polyansky said, who's the, uh, Russia's deputy permanent representative at the UN, uh, denying that this, this concept that Russia was becoming a pariah at the United Nations. And he said that I think it is the West that is isolated, but not us, not Russia in the General Assembly. It's going a bit far, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't say that West is isolated. West is a very important part of the world in itself, and many other countries outside of the West have trade relations and political relations and diplomatic relations and migration relations with the West. So I wouldn't say that the West is isolated. But Russia is not isolated as well, and Russia is not a pariah state. You know, just recently, Chinese leader visited Moscow with a three-day visit. How can you call a some any country a pariah state when it is visited by a leader 
leader of the second uh, superpower in the world. So let's say that Russia and, and Western countries both have their own narrative. They are not isolated in the world, but they are to a large extent isolated from each other. So it's true to say that Russia is to a large extent isolated from the West, but not on the global scale. Let, let's admit it. Uh, Rasmus, I just want to back up a little bit to better understand the role of the Security Council. Uh, the permanent members of the Council are the UK, US, France, China and Russia. Tell us more about the establishment of the Security Council, why it was set up and, and why those nations in particular? Well, it was obviously in the aftermath of the Second World War and, and there were the, the five countries uh, gathered, the most powerful countries uh, to become the permanent members. Uh, of course, uh, Russia wasn't uh, originally part of that, but uh, pretty soon also then became a part of it. But I mean, as was already explained, uh, there has been an attempt to reform the Security Council almost uh, ever since it was established in the first place. But reform is really difficult. So uh, we're still stuck with this uh, current format. Um, and because basically any change in that system would require that all the permanent members would uh, agree uh, to the reform, uh, which is why we haven't seen, haven't seen that reform happening. Uh, effectively, and in conflicts uh, like this one, uh, Russia's uh, aggression against Ukraine, uh, we see that the, the Security Council immediately becomes paralyzed uh, because uh, it, it's a permanent uh, member of the Security Council that is the aggressor uh, nation. Uh, Stephen, there are those who, who question whether even Russia holds a legitimate seat, should hold a legitimate seat on the UN Security Council, given that when it was established, it was the Soviet Union and not Russia uh, that had that seat. Well, it, I mean, Russia is recognised as the legal inheritor of the Soviet Union's seat. So I, I don't think that's really... in in question, frankly. Um, and also, it is worth saying, I mean, the United States recognizes Russia as a great power. That's not the issue. And the United States recognizes Russia's uh, position on the Security Council. The question is rather a different one, which is the paralysis that Rasmus just described of a UN Security Council, which has veto power over everything, including anything to do with it. I mean, normally in a judicial system, a party that's involved would recuse itself from a decision, but instead uh, any, any member of the Security Council can block anything that it, that it actually likes. And frankly, if Russia didn't block something, China might block for it. So it is a kind of paralysis. It's just a kind of moral conundrum, or perhaps it's simply, you know, international relations and international law, to me, have very little to do with one another. I know we want to make it so, but in my experience covering conflict, uh, in general, international law isn't the deciding factor. What's deciding factor is lots of things, including power. You should ask, you know, Mr. Putin why he went into Ukraine. Um, I think he had every understanding that he was breaking international law, breaking the UN Charter. It simply didn't matter to him. Stanislav, what do you think about this, this concept of the, the paralysis that's created by any single member uh, being able to, to veto 
any form of resolution. It just means that it's toothless, that there is never any progress. Ah, yeah. Well, I think it is so by design. It was designed this way to satisfy the demands of the winning powers of the Second World War. You can, uh, United Nations Security Council cannot make a move against United States, against Russia, against France, against Great Britain and against China. So it is so by design. Let's, let's admit it's better to have it than to have nothing. Uh, it is a way to at least to resume, I mean, to deal with some differences to some different political positions. This is a way to prevent the Third World War. And from this perspective, Security Council was more or less successful. As from the point of view of being a global policeman, well, of course, it doesn't work this way just because they are different countries with different agendas. Probably some people in 90s, in the beginning of the 21st century, they thought that Security Council would be global policeman. But, you know, Russia has its own position, China has its own position. And you cannot imagine a kind of a quasi-global government or global policeman in a way Security Council exists without support of Russia and China. It will be not working. And what about India? What about Brazil? By the way, it was Russian idea to probably include these countries, and these countries historically had uh, a long history of um, de debates with Russia, how it is possible to include India and Brazil into the Security Council. And I wouldn't say that it will be easier for Western countries to suppress, I don't know, Russian political regime if India and Brazil join Security Council. I suppose it will be even more difficult for, uh, for the Western world in this case. Do you think that's the case, Rasmus, that if you broaden the membership, that it's going to create more difficulty and more uh, intractability going forward? I think the question of the reform is, is a bit more nuanced. I mean, there is a question of broadening the, the participation in the, in the Security Council. Then there's another question is uh, what to do with the veto uh, power. Then there's a question of uh, what is the, the role of the, the General Assembly and, and should that be also uh, increased a little bit. So I think it's a little bit more complicated uh, question. But I mean, it's yeah, it's fair to say that uh, this current uh, setup is, uh, is not really uh, reflecting the reality of the, of the situation at the moment. But I also think that um, what, uh, what Stephen was saying, that uh, normally in these kind of situations, one would expect uh, the, the country that is involved in the conflict and in fact is the aggressor to recuse itself from, from those considerations uh, around that conflict. But of course, that, that hasn't happened. No, and Rasmus, this, this concept of veto power, was it just an error of judgment at the establishment of the UN Security Council? Is it something that, you know, looking back, the founders, if they were able to, might wish that they'd done differently? Well, I mean, yes, uh, in a way, yes. And that's why the, the whole debate around the reform has, has uh, been going around for, for so many decades. But of course, it was reflecting the, the realities of the moment. And um, mm. yeah, let's just say that uh, the, the great powers, no matter how we define a great power, they are really reluctant to, to relinquish uh, any, of, any of that power. And um, this, is, this is just a reality we're living with. All right. Uh, we've touched on it briefly, but let's explore more now about the UN Security Council's role, especially in Ukraine. And Stephen, as far as uh, the conflict is concerned, what has the United Nations managed to achieve, first of all? Well, I think um, Guterres, who's the 
Secretary General has felt kind of on the side. He's been finding, trying to find ways to insert the UN into the conflict, which is difficult for all the reasons that that we've just been talking about. But but the UN has been um, very much trying to be an agent for the countries that need Ukrainian grain and and. Um, Russian fertilizer. So um, working with Turkey, uh, the United Nations was instrumental in in creating a system whereby Ukraine could export some of some of its grain. I think um, the UN's uh, International Atomic Energy Agency has been very, very important um, in trying to raise the world's consciousness not just and and also the russian military consciousness of the dangers involved in the war around some of ukraine's biggest atomic energy plants originally built under the soviet union of course um but they are you know zaporizhia in particular has warfare all around it it has had electricity cuts it's it's been very very dangerous and i think Rafael Grossi and his team have done a very, very good job in trying to keep it safe. Um, so I think that's important. And I think we should not underestimate the importance of, of organizations like UNHCR and the World Food Program and UNICEF in just trying to help the poor who are most affected by this war. They're, they're not combatants, but they are also victims. In Stanislav, so those are the positives that Stephen has just itemized. In terms of where the UN has failed as far as this conflict is concerned, interested to know what your perspective is on that. Well, I agree with that there are parts of UN that are important for everyone. For example, food program is important for everyone, cultural social issues are important for everyone and once again i want to underline that we are still living we were able to survive the period of cold war and un played a role there it was a mediator place for discussions for resolving conflicts yes not all the conflicts were prevented there were wars uh, all over the world uh, vietnam korea in Africa and many other parts of the world, Afghanistan, but there was no a shooting war between Soviet Union and United States of America, between Soviet bloc, Warsaw Pact and NATO. And this is one of the results that can be called a great success of United Nations organizations. So to what, a large extent, it was a successful part Probably it could be used later. Particularly today? Well, I think this grain deal is uh, what, what what UN can do, a deal about fertilizers, uh, International Atomic Energy Agency is also a very important mediator here. I will not be surprised if uh, in the end diplomatic relations between Russia and Ukraine could be restored with the help of UN, why not? So, well, I still do believe that UN is something important in our world. Yeah, and Rasmus, uh, it certainly failed to, the UN certainly failed to broker any kind of peace uh, as of this moment, but I guess when the end, as and when the end of the conflict happens, the UN is going to play a key role in how things progress. Yeah, it's, it's possible that, uh, that the UN will, will play a role there and, and to get the overall legitimacy of, of any deal, it would be important to, to have the UN involved 
I think in practice uh, there might be some uh, smaller groups of countries that might try to act as as mediators and and go betweens and and maybe it could uh, evolve from there. But of course, in any of these plans, the most crucial thing is to to see what uh, what Ukraine is is ready and and willing to do and 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 hopefully hopefully uh, then then a solution could be worked out. Stephen, do you think? Uh the UN Security Council could have played a, a bigger role in trying to achieve some kind of resolution to the conflict as of now? Oh, I wish that were true. It might have been true before February 24th of last year when Russian troops crossed the border. Once that happened, I think uh, we're stuck. But it is possible that the UN could have done more, I think, to try to resolve the conflicts. It's hard to say because ever since uh, the Maidan in 2014 and the annexation of annexation of Crimea, Russia has has basically violated the UN Charter and uh, and violated Ukrainian sovereignty, which Russia itself had recognized as early as as uh, 1991. So, you know, in the end, you can only solve conflicts when two sides want to solve conflicts or when they're exhausted. And I, I think that's a moment that has not yet come and probably hadn't come before um, much after 2014. So I don't really blame the UN for this, but I do think there was a lot of complacency about Ukraine and and Russia after 2014, when many, many thousands of people were dying in the Donbass in basically an undeclared war. And Stanislav, ultimately, the ball is in President Putin's court, isn't it, to find resolution to this conflict? Well, I think Putin is one of the most important players in the world now, including Ukrainian. Uh, Ukrainian crisis, but he is not alone here. I think he waits uh, for some moves from the Western world as well. He wants some kind of peace negotiations that can end this military conflict too, but in a situation when Russia can say that it got something, for example, it got uh, this land corridor to Crimea secured, I think it could be enough for Putin to explain to his own population that he, he was successful, but it is necessary to recognize it from the Western world as well. If, uh, let's say, Mr. Biden said that he is ready for this kind of deal, in this case, I think conflict could end. Rasmus, finally, if we just come to you in terms of, we've been talking about the, the reformation of the UN Security Council. Uh, certainly, President Biden has said that uh, they support increasing the number of both permanent and non-permanent representatives of the council. But as we've discussed, uh, actually making that happen is difficult. Can you say, I mean, if we spin forward, say, 10 years, in a decade's time, is it, is it going to look as it does now? Because it, as time goes on, it looks more and more archaic. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think it's um, one can't be too optimistic at this point. Um, in the longer term, we don't know. Certainly, there might be some some new um, avenues opening for actually making the reform happen. But I think right now is is really not the the time even to be focusing too much on that reform. There are other pressing pressing matters uh, at hand. 
But if I could just go back also to the previous uh, points made uh, and, and whether the, the UN uh, failed to, to prevent um, the invasion, I mean, I wouldn't blame the, the UN, but, uh, but it was in a way unfortunate that uh, Russia had the rotating presidency of the Security Council a year ago, back in February 22, and it used that opportunity to talk about its peaceful intentions. Uh, which basically served to, to erode the support for, um, for the other countries to, to have a coalition to prevent that invasion. So it was an unfortunate uh, timing in that sense and allowed a possibility for Russia to, to, to spread that kind of uh, mis or, or disinformation. Uh, Rasmus, appreciate that. We're going to have to leave it there. In fact, to all our guests, thank you very much indeed. Uh, to Stanislav Mitrakovic, to Rasmus Hindren and to Stephen Erlanger. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Fungi Nguyen and Fintan Monahan. Studio sound was by Alvaro Galan Madrid and the programme was edited by Mohamed Asubi, Lynn Nguyen and Joe DeFrance. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next edition. This week on The Take, Israelis have been protesting against Israel's far-right government for weeks. But what does it mean for relationships with its neighbors and the U.S.? Find it wherever you get your podcasts.